You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine. It's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right, man. How are you? I mean, it's a little little hazardous out there, and I appreciate you making things easier by shoveling your walk and or porch. Oh, wait, you did neither of those things. My walk was shoveled yesterday just because the... Uh, the drifts of snow, the, the unbelievably biting wind has moved the drifts of snow back onto the concrete does not necessarily represent a lack of effort on my part. It's a goddamn skating rink out there, man. I know. It's, uh, uh, this is the time of the year, every year in Montana, where I feel like weather has made its point, <laughs> or, and winter has made its point, and from here on out, it's just kind of like a vulgar display. Just running up like the it, score on us? Yes. Yeah. It just wants you to know what's up. Yeah. Anyway, Ben, uh, three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, hey, yo, Uriah Faber, thumbs up, dude. And in round number two, Jose Aldo coasts to another victory and now might move up and wait in search of a real fight. But what are the odds that these two guys can both get healthy at the same time? And in round number three, oh, Frank Mir. Man. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? And uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is going to come in to do Master Tweet Theater with us this week. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. You know, I saw uh, Sir Nigel Longstock in the green room. Yeah. And uh, he seems saucy. He seems like uh, he might he might be tuning up for this this week's Master Tweet Theater. Like we might have a. Uh, uh, some shit on our hands. Should we be worried? I'm a little worried. Yeah, I should don't we, mind telling you. Should we call security? Because you and I both know the problem is not so much getting them in here. It's getting them out. That's right. <laughs> uh, the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Chad Smith, who I assume is the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, he writes, last episode, you questioned the value of UFC 169's card, spinning that old journalistic yarn of too many fights in a calendar year. Are two title fights not sufficient? That shit rarely happens on any pay-per-view, even back in the skinny Dana White days, with 30 <laughs> or less annual events. Who else could have brought more marquee power? Excluding Bones, who didn't take the Super Bowl slot, all other champs of higher value are either injured or have just fought. Even the big non-title draws are unavailable. Anderson's leg is properly fucked. Nick Diaz is prepping for the Cannabis Cup. GSP is dropping truth bombs from a UFO in Montreal, and Sonnen's playing Grandass with Wandy in Brazil on Tough. Who gives a shit, really? <laughs> with all this in mind, it was a solid card. Sure, it didn't have the potential pay-per-view buy rate that would make Dave Meltzer cream his panties, but two title fights is marquee as fuck. So please, pause from your 169 shat, wipe up with each title strap and defend yourselves. That is a is an inspired effort from <laughs> yes. Chad Smith. Yes, it is. So first of all, kudos to him. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I assume that this was written before UFC 169. <laughs> See, that's... So breaking news. <laughs> yeah. Dun, 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 dun. In your face, Chad Smith, UFC 169 was in fact pretty shitty. Okay, but I do think that there is a valid point to be made here, that as far as... 
you know, because the UFC can't control whether the fights deliver or not, even right. though they'll be the first ones when people complain about a fight card's quality on paper. And if it turns out to be even slightly better than people thought it would be, Dana White's going to be the first guy to brag about it. Uh, and here's one where it's kind of the opposite. Like on paper, yeah, you're right. You know, two title fights. You got a couple of heavyweights there. You got Jamie Varner and Abel Trujillo uh, going to throw bungalows to, to lead off the main card. And really only one of those things delivers uh you know yeah. even more so than you expect but so i i don't know i don't this isn't one where i'm like okay this this card i think did kind of suck but i think it sucked because it underperformed whereas a lot of the other cards that we were talking when we do launch that criticism that the product has been kind of watered down by having too many events which when you have jamie varner versus abel trujillo on as the curtain jerk on your pay-per-view card even though that fight turns out to be the best fight on the card Still pretty much proof positive that that that's a fact and people should stop writing us disputing it. I don't know. I mean, though that one I think is like knowing how the UFC plans out those pay-per-views. I think that one fits on a lot of pay-per-views. Nah. No. No. Well, you're, now you're just kind of being. An I asshole. mean, it's going to be a good fight, but those. But who are those dudes? Like Jamie Varner's a guy. He's a former WEC lightweight champion, but like that's not a that ain't your pay-per-view fight, man. Because <laughs> they're going to throw them bungalows. Well, okay, but uh, I guess the the point is when we. Make that criticism, we're not making it about cards like USC 169, which did end up kind of sucking, but for different right. reasons. Sucking right. just because any card can just kind of suck sometimes. Yeah, and I don't think the, the, the valid criticism of UFC 169 is not, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, that the, the title fights were in, in weight classes that aren't particularly uh, saleable so far in the UFC, even though they're weight classes that strike near and dear to my heart and weight classes that I love. I feel like the criticism to be launched about those two fights were the matchups. You know, you had one that features Uriah Faber, who's obviously uh, one of the more popular guys in the division, we're told, but that was sort of like a last minute makeup. We were supposed to get Hennon Barrow against Dominic Cruz. So that was actually the fight that I was most excited about. Right. So to have Dominic Cruz drop out kind of undermined some of the excitement and momentum for the card. And then and, you know, the featherweight title fight featuring Jose Aldo and Ricardo Lamas. Ricardo Lamas, like we said last week, a tough dude, but a guy who had only been on UFC TV twice before and a guy that I wasn't sure that anybody knew who he was. So um, for me, it was sort of matchup related more than anything else. And, you know, I was obviously being a little bit uh, uh, facetious when I put it in Chad Smith's face because I think on paper it didn't look like a terrible card. It just did sort of like underperform. Yeah. And you're right that. You know, it's one thing where you have uh, the champions in some lighter weight classes that the UFC has had to kind of a hard time really pushing. And then on top of that, when you have to kind of reshuffle and, and come up with a plan B, it, then, hey, if you consider it under that light, not so bad. Uh, but it is one of those things where uh, you look down at somewhere at the rest of the card. I remember thinking about this as I was watching the, the prelims and stuff, how it seems like we're getting to this point with UFC events where – okay, we have these levels of stratification in our minds. Like, here's where it's, like, online quality. Here's where it's, like, cable TV quality. And now to the point where here's where we get to the point in the card where it's finally all guys who have fought in the UFC before. Because it's, like, the first, like, four fights, uh, I think, all had dudes making their debut and losing in their debut, except for the one dude who made his debut against another guy making his debut. Like, it seems like we see that a lot in these fight cards now, in part because they're stretched too thin, but also in part because the UFC is trying to, you know, make an effort to find some new guys, I think, where you see a lot of dudes where you just never heard of them before, and it's like it feel, like the prelims start to feel like tryout time. 
The second uh, piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Aaron Hill. He writes, Much was made of the record-setting number of decisions that occurred at UFC 169 over the weekend. Then, during the post-fight press conference, Dana White commented about how embarrassing it was to have so many decisions on the night. On a night when there were reports of fights in the stands at the Newark, New Jersey Prudential Center, including a stabbing, Dana White's reaction got me thinking. He epitomizes everything which I hate about MMA fans seems a little strong, but we'll just keep going. This idea, which Dana prom uh, promotes and many MMA fans hold to that the only good kind of fight is one that ends in a knockout or a gnarly sub submission, is bothersome, to say the least. There were several entertaining and well-fought fights on Saturday night that went to decision. If I were a fighter like Clint Hester, Al Iaquinta, or, oh, he put this in there just to make me say it, didn't he? Ali Baganatinov. Nailed it. Uh... I'd be frankly pissed at hearing Dana White's remarks. How much do you think that Dana White contributes to the do you ever train bro, hit him in the face kind of MMA fans that seem to pervade uh, fight watching culture? Now, I will say I agree with Aaron Hill that it is super annoying that for at least a certain percentage of fans, uh, the fact that a fight goes to a decision equates with it being a shitty fight and at times is reason enough for them to indict the, the strategies and fighting styles of the gentlemen involved. Right. Uh, I don't think that's always the case. Obviously there's, there's some really awesome fights that, that go to decision. Uh, and on this card, I think there was a mix because there were also some fights that I thought were pretty poor that ended up going to decision and or fights that I thought were uh, a little bit uh, uh, disappointing or underwhelming uh, as to what I expected from those fights. Uh, at the same time, though, and you want to talk about Dana White's reaction to it. I think the thing that we always have to remember about Dana White is that he is a salesman and he's trying to make money off this stuff. So it's in his best interest to... Uh, encourage guys to go out there and try to do stuff that they think is going to sell fights, right? And that's knock people out or do stuff that's going to be on sports center top plays or just go out there and go for broke. So the generalized feeling about the UFC's product is that it's super exciting and everybody wants to watch it all the time. At the same time, I think that does have an effect on like, that's not exactly the intended effect on fighters and that you know other people they hear that like Dana White can get up there at the press conference and kind of bash the guys who came out there and fought and I, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily appreciated by a lot of those dudes they might have to take it and shut up because he's the boss man he's in control it doesn't mean they like it and they also have to balance that with okay the UFC wants to tell you hey go out there and bang bro but if you lose a couple you could be cut I mean you gotta you gotta balance those concerns in your mind somehow and the UFC, you know, it just wants what it wants. It just wants a good product in the end and doesn't necessarily care how you get there. And like you said, though, like, you know, fights, uh, Ally Quinta's fight, uh, that was a pretty exciting one to watch. The, the Clint Hester, Andy Enns fight had its moments. It's the ones like, uh, Nick Atone and, and Tom Kong Watson. That one was pretty awful. Uh, and, uh, Alon Patrick and, and John McDessie, another one pretty awful. And then I think we were looking at the Alistair Overeem and Frank Mir fight going like, all right, well, at least, at least these guys won't make us sit through three rounds. Right. And then they did. They totally did. Totally did. Uh, yeah. And if I guess if the question here from Aaron Hill is whether or not we think that that trickles down, like the, that the Dana White attitude trickles down into the culture, I'd say a little bit, although you might get yourself into a chicken and in the egg type situation there right. where uh, it's hard to tell if, if Dana White uh, sets the agenda for the culture or if he just reflects it like a 
like a shining mirror that we all makes us all question ourselves. I'm tempted to say that's more the first one than the second. I think for to a certain extent, yeah, I think the UFC's entire way of doing business has has trickled down a little bit, uh, you know, and it, sometimes in very uh, over the top ways, and sometimes in really subtle ways, just in 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 the kind of ways that uh, that they've defined the how the subculture. Uh, what the subculture thinks of as a good fight or what the subculture thinks of as acceptable or unacceptable. Uh, and, and have done that in a lot of, in a lot of ways, most of which I assume were unintentional, uh, that, that, uh, the UFC just tried to do, uh, what they thought would create a good product and the kind of stuff that they thought would be advantageous to them. And then, uh, ended up kind of like shaping this culture, I think, cause it's hard to think that they would have done it on purpose Yeah, because if they did, that's some clever shit. Well, also, it makes me think about uh, when I was at the UFC on Fox event in Chicago, and afterwards I was talking to Benson Henderson's coach, uh, John Crouch, and, and asking, hey, do you guys ever think we're taking a lot of heat for winning these split decisions and getting these really narrow victories? Do we need to change up the style? And he was saying you know, that you just can't think that way because, uh, in his experience, what seems to happen to those dudes is they go out there, guns blazing, win one fight of the night bonus, and then lose their next four and, and are out. You know, they, they, it's just not a, a good way to think. And we got some questions, and I can think that some people are, are wondering this about, like, a guy like Jamie Varner who went out there and got in a, a brawl with Abel Trujillo, got knocked out in a fight where it looked like he was right on the verge of winning, and he got that, that fight of the night bonus, but seems like maybe he could have gone a little more of a strategic route and had a better chance of winning. And then afterwards he gets on Twitter and says he'd rather get knocked out than win a boring decision. Would you really? I don't know. That's just that 75 G's talking. <laughs> yes. These guys got extra money, right? One of them got extra money because there was got, no submission. I can't remember if it was the, money, yeah. it was the fight of the night yeah. bonus that they made 75. See, so there you go. He's got that 75 G's burning a hole in his pocket. Yeah. And, and you know, you're in Newark. You got 75 G's. Life is good, man. I wouldn't go that far. Buy all of Newark for that much money. The next uh, piece of listener mail comes to us from Tyson Refray. He writes, early on Sunday or Saturday morning, it was announced that the Texas Athletic Commission had overturned Jessica I's split decision victory over Sarah Kaufman without giving any explanation. Uh, Sarah Kaufman has stated on Twitter that she did not file a grievance, and Jessica I has also publicly stated that she has not taken PEDs and will still fight Alexis Davis because she has not been suspended. Uh, neither competitor has been told why the decision has been overturned and the public is left wondering what happened have either of you seen a commission do something like this before and more importantly does this mean that roy nelson can hold out hope for a no contest in his fight against daniel cormier on the same card uh obviously this also came in to us uh before some some additional news unfolded that ben i know that you were working on today do you want to bring us up to speed well first of all i want to give you a shout out to you know, maybe you can't pronounce Ali Bagautinov's name, but when it, when somebody has a German name like like Sarah Kaufman, you you get in there. I like that. Uh, you know what? I didn't take four years of German in high school and college to not uh, to not be able to pronounce it. No, you did not. Nick Schlecht, Chad. Yeah. Nick Schlecht. I also did not take it apparently to be able to speak German because I cannot. <laughs> well, yeah. About the thing with uh, Jessica, yeah. I Talked to some people at the uh, Texas Commission, the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation, uh, and it seems that what happened was uh, Jessica I tested positive for a prohibited drug. They won't say which one. Uh, at least they, they won't say it yet. They keep saying, hey, you can just file an open records request, which I means I guess means we'll find out in like three weeks or something. I filed that request, but I haven't heard anything back. Uh, and... The so they they find her like 
1800 bucks basically changed the split decision win to a no decision uh and put her on uh like a probationary suspension which basically means not a suspension she can still fight uh the probationary suspension starts like the date that the order was issued which is January 22nd i believe uh and goes for a year and there are some you know terms of this agreement that she has to meet presumably like follow up drug tests or something they also won't disclose those yet until you actually have to try and you know request the the actual agreement um but it's like it's a suspension that's not really active unless she screws up and then it becomes active um, which seems kind of pointless to me because either you failed the drug test or you didn't and either you're on suspension or you're not. So basically she can still fight. Uh, the thing that it's, it screws up is that now you don't know what are you supposed to think about her fight with Sarah Kaufman now? Like she's getting the, the boost from it, right? Like she gets right. that fight with Alexis Davis at UFC 170 on the undercard of Ronda Rousey and Sarah McMahon. She got the win bonus. Like, she got basically everything except for, like, the W to stick on her record. Um, but the UFC seems to be treating her as if, you know, she, she got that win. Meanwhile, Sarah Kaufman, as Chad would say, uh, still doesn't even have a fight. So it's just one of those situations where, especially when it comes more than three months after the fight itself, you just wonder what the hell was the point of it. I like the way you say that's how I would say it. Like, that's not the way that you say that name. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is weird, man. Uh, this is weird. And it's, you could argue, I think, that one of the main problems with uh, the way that drug testing in, is enforced in, in MMA is that a lot of times uh, when you test positive, uh, you don't suffer really any any consequences, at least not consequences that your average professional fighter would consider to be very dire, you know. Uh, and I think that's the case for Jessica I here. Obviously, uh, in the aftermath, we have a bunch of different stories. I believe her uh, people told uh, Jeremy Botter from, from Bleacher Report today that she took a uh, medicine for some kind of uh, legitimate medical condition that she has. But as we all know from recent history, that could mean anything when you're yeah. when you're discussing the topic with, with professional fighters. So it is very strange. It's just another weird twist in the uh, in the life of the Texas Commission. I guess. Yeah. You know, well, when you saw this come across, I guarantee every person that that knew enough uh, thought to themselves, Texas, dude, Texas. Yeah. Well, and that also makes you wonder, like, OK, say that she it was for, you know, a legitimate uh, medication and that's why the suspension is not really active. Well, then if I'm just high, I'd be pissed off that I had to pay a fine and I had that that win taken off my record. Yeah. And like why you got this probationary suspension, right? Well, yeah, like, I mean, if it was a legitimate uh, medicine that was, you know, not a performance-enhancing substance and something she actually needed for medical reasons, then it just seems like what, then she would be mad of, about getting screwed with here. Uh, the next piece of listener mail, the last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Kent Carter. He writes, Abel Trujillo is unquestionably a badass in the cage, but it seems like he's a bad dude outside the cage as well. I'm, of course, referring to the two domestic assault charges that he pled guilty to. It seems like the MMA community is giving him a pass on this and uh, is willing to overlook the fact that the fists he KO'd Varner with are the same fists he used to batter the mother, mother of his children. Ouch. Uh, which makes me pretty uncomfortable. What do you guys think? Yeah. You know, it, uncomfortable, I guess, is the right word. Uh, and the kind of stuff where you just you don't know what to say uh, about, especially when a, a guy is in trouble for like doing something violent, and he's on TV, and we're praising how awesomely violent he is. That's the kind of stuff that where it does start to get uncomfortable. 
Right. Yeah, it's weird, and it's you know there, well, there's a lot of weird stuff when you get involved in the combat sports. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, a lot of the dudes who fight in MMA fights are super nice guys and and upstanding citizens, and a lot of them are are uh, surprisingly cool guys to talk to, and uh, and you know well educated guys. A lot of them went to college. Uh, you know, well educated men and women, and uh, some of them aren't good people. You know, some of them are. Are bad people, and I can't presume to say uh, which is true about Abel Trujillo. Although the the domestic violence uh, stories are are indeed troubling, probably point you in one direction rather than the other. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, you are dealing with uh, with the fight game, I guess right. you could say. And this is a company that that you know uh, has made sort of an unofficial mascot out of Mike Tyson, uh, seemingly without uh, any pause to to like consider his own checkered history and whether or not that would be a good good or bad uh guy to have around and treat like the greatest guy of all time uh so i i agree it's weird it's troubling uh you know it's it's it i don't want to say it comes with the territory but when you're involved in 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 the fight game i guess the you chances are you're going to meet some people that aren't the greatest people in the world uh which is probably true of anything that you would do and that's a i mean we can't stop guys from being on the TV, but you do get to decide uh, who you like and who you associate with. And uh, you can kind of make your own universe in that regard. Well, I guess one of the things, though, I, I wonder with stuff like this, because I feel the same way that the, the question asker does here. But uh, I guess I, I, what I wonder is, what are we supposed to do about it? Because like, what are our options that every time his name comes up in a conversation about MMA, we feel obliged to point out that he pled guilty to domestic violence like every single time um, just so that he can never again in his life, like have a mention of him doing anything good without being reminded of some times that he did some bad stuff. Like it seems sometimes like we're eager to make the leap uh, in our culture from this person did some bad things to they are a bad person uh, forever and ever no matter what. And I don't know. I I don't know if that's necessarily the solution that we're really looking for here. It also reminds me a completely different situation, but uh, did you read in the New York Times the open letter from uh, Woody Allen's adopted daughter about the sexual assault charges uh, and no. all, all that fallout? No, I did not. This does seem unrelated, but I'm interested to know where you're going with it. It's kind of a, it's kind of a similar issue, I think, for a lot of people. Hey, you like Woody Allen movies. What if Woody Allen turned out you know, all the sexual assault stuff about him is true and he's, you know, an irredeemable scumbag in that regard. Then, hey, do you still like Annie Hall? Is that still a good movie? Same kind of a thing. I think, like, can you still be a, a fan of a dude who, like, you, you like him as an athlete if it turned out in his personal life uh, he was, you know, a, a wife-beating jerk? Can, can that still happen? I don't know. That's, that's a tough one for people, I think. Well, first Woody Allen reference. You should actually read that open letter. On the co-main event podcast. Probably, maybe not the last. I don't know. It is haunting. I will say that. Anyway, that's going to do it for uh, Listener Mail this week. We love to leave you on a haunting note more than anything else. If you have a question, comment, or concern for the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, during Saturday night's main event, uh, I guess not the awesome wrestling show of our childhood, but the marquee attraction of UFC 169. Oh, man. Hanando uh, Nascimento Mota Pagado. Nailed it. Uh, you can probably tell that I didn't take Portuguese in school. Uh, defeated Uriah Faber by controversial first round TKO uh, in their battle for the UFC Bantamweight Championship. Um, I guess let's just talk about the stoppage first so we can get get all that stuff out of the way. Uh, bad stoppage or not a bad stoppage? I'm going to say bad stoppage. Uh you know, just especially because when I went back and, and looked at it again, the first time you're thinking, okay, Faber's clearly in some trouble here. Uh, and uh, Barrow is doing the old Roy Nelson special where you, you're basically counting off the, the strikes on the dude and looking up at the referee like, you seeing this shit? And hoping that you'll kind of just like shame him or bait him into stepping into stopping the fight. Then you go back and you look at those those punches Man, those weren't really doing anything. Faber had his head covered up pretty well. They're just basically bouncing off his gloves ineffectually. Uh, and then he's trying to uh, flash that most Uriah Faberian of hand signals, the, the thumbs up uh, with his other hand. Uh, it did seem like, you know, that's that does not warrant a stoppage there. I mean, granted, it seems like he was probably going to be stopped pretty soon thereafter anyway, but you don't know. I mean, look at what happened in the, the Jamie Varner-Abel Trujillo fight. Like, that's why we let that shit play out. I mean, again, everybody's quick to point out Herb Dean is one of the best in the business. Did seem like he made a mistake here, though. Yeah, I sort of agree with you. I agree with everything you said. Uh, at the same time, I guess my question would be, how long do you let that go on before right. you step in and uh, and call a stoppage? You can't have it go on indefinitely, right? right? You can't just let Hanan Burrell sit there and, and hammer fist Uriah Faber for the last minute and 20 seconds of the round or whatever. Uh, but also, you're right, uh, Faber, or I, I mean, Faber had himself in a bad position, uh, didn't really seem like he was doing anything to uh, to improve his position. Uh, I guess we could argue all day about the definition of intelligent defense. Uh, Faber had his hand up. He had one leg of Barrows hooked. He clearly wasn't out. He wasn't hurt. He obviously passed the what the fuck test. Yeah. Uh, that he was able to immediately ask Herb Dean what the fuck when, uh, after he stopped the fight. Uh, I will pretty much circle back though to something we've talked about on this, on this, uh, show before. And that's that we ask these MMA referees to do an almost inhuman job, like a job that is impossible to do perfectly all the time. And yet it seems like we continue to expect perfection from them. And, uh, when they don't live up to that standard, which I think is, is, is impossible, uh, we kind of rake them over the coals for it every single time. I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that that, that, that stoppage happened in this fight because it was a championship fight. And, uh, and the and main Jesus, of, we needed something on that card. That's right. And, and the, you know, the main event of this show, uh, and, you know, let me say also as an aside that I think Uriah Faber and Herb Dean both handled it about as well as they possibly could. You know, at the same time, though, uh, when you get dropped and you go face down on the canvas and get up to your hands and knees and you're sitting there getting hammer fisted in the side of the face uh, and it doesn't seem like you're trying to get out of it. Uh, I don't know that I would that I would hang all of my hopes on a on a thumbs up. That is not visible to the referee. Although I guess you could you could make the same defense of Uriah Faber that I just made for Herb Dean. Like in the, it's really hard in the moment to tell what's going to happen. Uh, well, and also it seems like we've developed this kind of like 
common understanding that what's going to happen is you're going to get you get rocked, you're in a bad position, the ref's going to say, you know, show me something, show that you're still in this, or you got to move, something like that. And it, then it's like, okay, so now the dude who has gotten himself in a bad spot is obliged to just kind of spaz out and maybe get himself into a worse one because Uriah Faber was not in like he was in a pretty good spot to defend himself given you know how that situation had unfolded to tell him like okay you gotta like the onus is on you to like to move in order to show us it's like for somehow like it gets to this thing where guys can get their heads beat in as long as they're constantly moving just a little bit and doing just enough to show the referee that they're not dead yet. Uh, and that seems like maybe that's something that we need to modify because it does seem like if you can, if the guy is coherent enough to flash the thumbs up and he's defending, then he does that. Shouldn't that buy him a little extra time? But then I guess, yeah, you're right. It's dependent on the referee being able to see your little thumb down there. Yeah. And I mean, in a perfect world, Herb Dean takes one step to the side, right? And then he has a better angle with which to view the thumbs up. I just don't know that we can expect these guys to, to, to perform perfectly in the moment as it's happening. Maybe uh, we need a safe word <laughs> they can say to let us know that they're still all right. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, let me ask you this, though. Uh, does Uriah Faber here, did he find a loophole in terms of maybe uh, keeping his hopes alive to get yet another UFC title shot? Uh, because, you know, this was his fifth or si- sixth, I believe. This is his sixth UFC title shot or Zufa fourth, title shot. Maybe? Uh, can, in, including, uh, WEC okay, stuff, I think WEC, going back to 2008. Yeah. I believe he'd be 0 and 6 now, uh, in his last six title defenses or title shots. Uh, and, and you'd think, you know, 34 years old, not sure he's necessarily going to get any more. Although now you've got this situation where, while it didn't look like he was about to jump up and win the fight, uh, you still have a little bit of a, of a herky jerky, uh, ending to this fight. Is this, does this pave the way for your Ryan Faber to get back in there with the monster? You know, that's an interesting uh theory. I think, though, it's one of those situations where the only way he's getting, well, two ways that he can get another title shot uh at bantamweight. One is if somebody else becomes the champion, preferably Dominic Cruz reclaiming it, because those guys have always had this, this long-standing rivalry, so it wouldn't be too hard for the UFC to justify throwing that one together again. Uh, the other is for absolutely everybody else to get their turn, and then we come back around to Uriah. Or maybe, you know, a lot of people get their turn, and then somebody gets hurt, and we call up Uriah and see if he can make it on three weeks' notice again. You know, that's pretty much the only way I see it happening. And also, you know, he's like mid-30s now. Yeah. He can't be the California kid forever. So eventually, I think that he's just kind of kind of run out of time. Uh, but... I, I kind of expected to hear him say something along the lines of thinking about, you know, changing weight classes, something like that, uh, to maybe give himself a better chance. But he kind of shot that one down immediately. Yeah, you'd think he would think about it, especially if Jose Aldo's not going to be up there anymore. If he's going to go to 155, which oh, I... buddy Chad Mendes is there. We'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, later in the round. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, although, I, you know, Mendes and Cub Swanson, I guess, are rumored to get that title shot, though I don't know if we can fully say Chad Mendes is going to have that that championship on lockdown in quite the same way that uh, that Jose Aldo did. But I, I guess we'll find out. Before we have to wrap this roundup, though, I wanted to talk about uh, Hannon Barrow a little bit. Uh, a monster? As we know, he is, in fact, a monster. And maybe a baron, too. Also a land-holding baron. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, we found out that this whole time his nickname's been the baron, that Barrow means baron in Portuguese. It's a nickname his grandma gave him after uh, his, his uh, likeness to a character on a mid-'80s Brazilian soap opera. 
I did not make that up. That's true. Well, it better be something like that because there's nothing about that dude that says Baron to well, me. Well, here's the question I wanted to ask you. You know, we've been bandying about Barrow and where he's supposed to be on the pound for pound list. And clearly the guy uh, fights a little bit like an old school Jose Aldo, just goes out there and kind of lets it all hang out. Uh, he's a little bit uh, more wild, comes with a little bit more unorthodox type stuff. Uh my question is, is, is Hennen Baroud a little bit too weird to like be a big star for the UFC? I, you know, I actually wrote about this in my kind of post fight, uh, takeaways. It does seem like if we were just basing stuff on pure fighting ability, like in the alternate universe where that's what everybody cared about and the only thing everybody cared about in the sport, he would be a superstar by now because obviously that dude is really fucking good, right? But the, the, you factor in the other stuff, uh, for for instance, you know the language barrier. He is weird looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does an overly sexualized dance. <laughs> Let's just say it. Let's just put it out there. That's your problem with the dance? Yeah, man. Like it's uh, it's a little bit too sexy for a post fight celebration dance. Like I'd rather have him out there doing the icky shuffle. You know, like step to the right, step to the right, step to the left, step to the left. <laughs> icky <laughs> shuffle. Not you know, not making anyone uncomfortable <laughs> you, out there. You find it erotic, is what you're saying. You I find, find him, it him, weird. Yeah. Let's just let's just put it that way. Well, it's the feelings that it makes me experience are weird. I didn't ben. expect this to go this direction, but okay. You know, but yeah, it, it just seems like he he doesn't have that kind of star power charisma that say a uh, a Ronda Rousey or a John Jones or even a Uriah Faber or uh, even a Jose does. Aldo. As far as I'm concerned, right. I mean, you look at Jose Aldo; he's got that scar on his face. He looks like an right. unbelievable badass. Or, or you look at like a guy like Anderson Silva, who at time, you know, also had the language barrier thing, and at times seemed to be actively thwarting media attempts to like get to know him. Uh, but that kind of worked. He had this mystique, you know, and this kind of like aura. And Henan Brow, as good and as awesome as he is, just doesn't seem to have that. Just kind of seems like a happy guy who's who's here to dance and and punch you in the face and make Chad Dundas feel some some feels in his bathing suit area and. You know, tingling. It's I weird. I don't, I don't know. know what's going on. I don't know if that really is going to make him into a superstar. It seemed like the one thing that he really could have used was a go out there and put your stamp on these cats kind of victory, which he is kind of robbed of against Uriah Faber. Then also kind of has himself to blame because he's the one, you know, locking eyes with Herb Dean and trying to get him to stop it before he really has a chance to, to put the hurt on the guy. Yeah, I mean, I think he's like seven and zero in the UFC now, and he's he's obviously thirty two one and one overall. hasn't lost, I think, since his first professional fight. Right? He's won. He's he's got all his wins right in a row, except for there's a there's a no contest mixed mixed in there. Uh, so you'd think if he was gonna get over, it might have happened by now. Uh, well, he's doing some awesome stuff in there. He is. He is doing some awesome stuff. Like I said, he he reminds me a little bit of Jose Aldo, but before he became quite as conservative as he is now. I'm just. Um, I don't know. I mean, the guy fights at 135, which has been a weight that the UFC hasn't been able to really, uh, make into a powerhouse in terms of, uh, of marketability so far. Uh, you know, it seems like Barrow's got a, a, some stuff working against him, all of which is probably totally unfair, right? Yeah. Because he's, he does what he's supposed to do. He's an awesome fighter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, I guess that just reminds us again about how we like to kid ourselves and acting like this is just like some other professional sport, like any other when it's not. Yeah. I mean, if he were, you know, an NFL quarterback going out there and doing that well at his job, people would be losing their goddamn minds, and they're not. Well, that's going to do it for round number one this week. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. I can tell he's fired up. He wants to get in here and uh, take over my chair and lead us in a, in another rendition of Master Tweet Theater. So we're going to go ahead and get started with that right now.
it's that time again. We welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I'm, in fact, feeling a little down in the dumps. Oh, no. Why is that? Well, I'm in mourning, you know, with the, the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's gotten me thinking. Yeah. Thinking about what, exactly? Well, you know, it's you know one of my first significant acting jobs was quoting lines from the big Lebowski on a date. And I just, I just <laughs> don't feel quite the same without him. Yeah. Uh, you know, with silver lining, with Philip Seymour Hoffman dead... Aren't you now officially our generation's greatest actor? Yes, that is absolutely true. It goes me, Tony Danza, and then it's a huge tie for third place with Laurence Olivier and whoever the fuck else. <laughs> well, I'm sorry it had to come about this way, but, you know, congratulations on the honor nonetheless. Uh, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel is going to read us off some tweets from various people in the MMA sphere. Chad and I are going to try and guess the tweeters in question. So, Sir Nigel, whenever you're ready, hit us with the first one. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I guess I should ask, is there a theme this week? No. No, there is not. <laughs> okay, well, that's refreshing. Instead of just a bullshit theme, we're just admitting that there is no theme. Yes, the theme today is brutal honesty. Okay, I like it. All right. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Magic is believing in yourself. If you can do that, you can make anything happen. Good fucking morning. Oh, man. For, at first, I was like, yeah. that's a Randy Couture. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Maybe a Rich Ace Franklin. Maybe, but probably Randy Couture. And then, I don't know. It's a little bit of a twister at the end. I'm going to say Matt Mitrione. Hmm. That's, that's not bad. I'm going to go poet Philip Baroni, I guess, here. That's, a, that's not a bad guess. Mostly, i got to be honest, mostly because of the last part. <laughs> you mean entirely because of the last part? <laughs> entirely and totally it is, Phil Veroni. Wishing you a good fucking morning because fuck you, wake up. <laughs> well, all right. Good, good one there, Chad. <clears throat> Switching it up. Putting him at the beginning. <clears throat> Tweet the second. The only reason I would ever want to have kids is so I could have little wrecking machines. But then I don't know. <laughs> I got this one. I, I saw this one when it went up, and I no took note of it. In fact, that is Felice Herrig. Oh, interesting. You sure? Pretty goddamn sure. All right. Well, then I guess I I'll, I'll abstain here. If you think you know, <laughs> it is it is most definitely Felice Herrig. Just gonna gonna have kids, or or maybe not. Depends what happens. So to be clear, the only reason she would want to have them is so that they could cause some kind of havoc. Yes, is she the wrecking machine? Because wrecking is capitalized, although machine is not. Isn't she like the little bulldog or something like that? Hmm. Maybe she just thought of a good nickname for her kids. You know, I think that uh, maybe the best thing for Felice to do is to hold off until we can come up with some maybe some better reasons to, to procreate. Now, I say bareback it. Let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> <clears throat> that's, that's also the title of my relationship advice book. <laughs> bareback it. Who cares? <laughs> Tweet the third. Why at Phil Baroni loves Bikram yoga, karate, and starvation diets? Wait, what? Yes, it's an exciting new field in English syntax. Why Phil Baroni loves Bikram yoga, karate, and starvation diets? Question mark. So somebody was asking this question to Phil Brony or asking it about Philip Brony? He seems to be asking it about. This tweet is missing the word does, as well as many other standard aspects of English. Uh, I guess I'm just going to say war machine, because yeah. they're buds. I was going to, exact same reasoning, I was also going to say war machine, because he's one of the only notable guys I know who tweets at Phil Brony a lot. 
It is. It yes. is War Machine tweeting at Phil Baroni. Uh, if you followed his Twitter this weekend, you can also see him getting very angry at the multi-ethnic Coke commercial. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. War Machine? War Machine appears to be consistently racist in his tweeting, which is weird. What? what? Come on, man. Really? I accuse War Machine of racism. <laughs> and yet, uh, it seems like, unlike Sean McCorkle, he will not be banned for life because Master Tweet Theater just needs him too much. Yes, if Sean McCorkle wants to start writing about his relationship with a porn star, he's welcome back to Master <laughs> Tweet Theater. <clears throat> tweet the fourth. CeeLo Green or whatever, please don't ever sing Journey again. Ah, <laughs> uh, we know that one. That's uh, that's Mike Goldberg, UFC play-by-play announcer. Mike fucking Goldberg. Tweeting in the same voice that he uses to announce the UFC. <laughs> it is. It is Mike Goldberg, apparently an ardent defender of Journey and the integrity of that. Which, I mean, I didn't know that until I, I read this tweet, but knowing it does not surprise me one bit. It makes perfect sense. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Journey is made entirely of studio musicians, right? They're all just Hollywood jobbers thrown into a band. Which, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it were, that would also make sense as to why a guy like Goldberg would love him. Yes, it's true. I'm just angry that they did not invite me. I played <laughs> well, a mean the... Jews harp. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> just move on, goddammit. You have to imagine it. I don't have it with me. <clears throat> Do we the fifth? Thus far, the Super Bowl is being smoked by Seattle, twenty-two to zero. Okay, so the that's Super like a Super Bowl. God, people listening at home, I both wish and am glad you cannot see Sir Nigel's facial expression when he does that. Kind of creepy. Uh, Chad, you got anything here? Matt Riddle. <laughs> oh, that's too clever. Uh, Joe Benavides. It is neither of those people. It is Mauro Rinaldo making a pun about marijuana. Okay, that fits. That mm-hmm. fits. Now I'm kind of, you know, though, I like that uh, both, well, I guess I like and am scared that uh, now that Sir Nigel is mixing it up, getting some of these characters like Mauro Rinaldo and Felice Harrigan there, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. Not a single Randy Couture in this one, Jed. Well, yeah, those first few were pretty easy and then <laughs> kind of switched it up on us with Mauro Rinaldo. Yeah. All right. All right, so Nigel, we see you up in your game. We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's it for this week's Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on? Well, it's funny you should ask, it sir. Is. You know, I've just wrapped shooting on an exciting film about a jewelry heist gone wrong and the emergency room physician who teaches the robbers the healing power of laughter. I see. And what is it called? It's called Snatch Adams. And what role do you play? I don't know. Some British person. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day, sir. Chad, in his title defense against Ricardo Lamas, it seemed like UFC featherweight champ Jose Aldo was doing just about everything he wanted to do, and then it was as if Misha Tate's corner and Brian Caraway got in his ear and said, just coast, just coast.
I mean, obviously, a, a solid performance, a clear win for Jose Aldo. Nobody's disputing that. However, also not exactly a thing that gets people especially fired up about Jose Aldo, is it? No, in my opinion, it was almost like a, a microcosm of his entire UFC career. It's like that's the fighter that he's become uh, since the, they appointed him UFC featherweight champion. Uh, and that is he is technically flawless and leaps and bounds ahead of the guy that he's fighting. And there's almost nothing to criticize about his performance except the fact that it seems to lack some really essential quality. And I don't know if that's just urgency or like the fact that he's become maybe a little bit overly conservative. Uh, but, you know, when the UFC announced team has to continually over and over again sell how awesome you are at leg kicking, you can be the featherweight champion, but you can't be a superstar, I don't think. Uh, and we talked about last week about how that, that, in my opinion, has been kind of disappointing about Jose Aldo, whereas it seems like it's totally unfair to criticize what the guy's done because he's 6-0 and now in the UFC. He's pretty much uh, blown through everybody uh, w- with the exception of a couple of, of close decisions. Uh, but at the same time, like if you saw what he did in the WEC before he kind of tightened up a little bit and became a little bit more conservative, he was just destroying people and doing stuff that didn't seem like it was possible. Uh, so to see him come into the UFC now, he's obviously been super good. He's he's one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world. But every time I watch him, I feel a little bit disappointed. And that makes me feel bad because I feel like that's not fair. But at the same time, I kind of expect more from him, man, well, especially when he's out there against a guy like Ricardo Lamas, who's obviously super tough, but is a dude that Jose Aldo just seems so much better than. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that you're really responding to is because, you know, you're right. I, I had that same kind of feeling where you're like, well, is it un- unfair to to criticize the dude for something like this. But I think that what you can criticize him for is that at least it seems like he could do whatever the hell he wants to. Like he can just crank it up a few notches and go out there and put some of these guys away, but that would involve exposing himself to a little more risk and he doesn't want to do that. That that seems like, you know, that reward is not worth that risk to him. And so he's content to build up a big enough lead and then hey, let these guys have a pretty good fifth round and I'll just kind of hold on and wait. Uh and you know, that obviously isn't going to get people too fired up, but I think that the reason that people really get upset about it is because it feels like, man, you are not living up to your potential. Like, you could be still doing awesome stuff. You're definitely way better than these guys. You could go out there and, and really, uh, you know, do some, some crazy flying, spinning stuff, uh, and you're just not doing it because it doesn't seem worth it to you. And understandably, it's then hard to get people really excited about watching you fight. Uh, unless. Oh, yeah. Unless you the, want to go up and wait. game done changed. That's right. Or at least it might be about to. Yeah. I challenge a, a bigger champion from the next division up. In this case, of course, we refer to pretty Tony Pettis, uh, who is not the kind of fighter who's going to let you coast through, it seems. like It seems like exactly the kind of fight that Aldo needs. Yeah. On paper, if you get a little bit less conservative Jose Aldo out there against the pomp and circumstance of uh, pretty Tony Pettis, it seems like it it has a couple of guys with styles that are going to perfectly complement themselves into producing a mind-blowing fight. Now, I realize I probably just jinxed it, yeah, that they're going to go. go out there and play human chess for 25 minutes, uh, but it's, it, it, you know, I it's... I, I kind of before the the Lamas fight thought that it would be a shame for featherweight if Jose Aldo moved on. And I feel like after watching him put on an overwhelming but sort of uninspiring performance against Lamas, I kind of now feel like 
maybe the best thing for Jose Aldo is to to take his talents to another division and move up to a a slightly bigger pond where uh, the challenges will be a little bit stiffer and the paydays will be a little bit bigger. And uh, you know, well, let's see what he has against uh, against Pretty Tony yeah. because uh, if you're if you are Jose Aldo and you go up there and, and beat Anthony Pettis, suddenly I think you are realistic in the discussion of whether or not you pass John Jones as number one pound for pound fighter in the world. Well, I also think the like you kind of alluded to, it's good for everybody. It's good for the division too because if he, he you know, he goes up in weight uh, and has to vacate the featherweight title, and then you know if you get a fight like Chad Mendes and Cub Swanson, hell, that's an awesome fight too. I would definitely want to watch that fight, especially you put it on the undercard of Aldo versus Pretty Tony Pettis. Shit. Take my money, please, UFC. That's the kind of stuff that might even get Chad Dundas to, to buy Fight Pass if you were willing to put it on oh, there. On. They're not Live from the Czech on. Republic. They're not putting that on a Fight Pass. <laughs> well, Wait, would they? <laughs> well, you know, and I think, of course, hey, it's always the thing. If he loses to, to Anthony Pettis, you know what? So what? You, you lost to the lightweight champ. He's bigger than you are. Uh, then you go back down and, you know, challenge for your own belt again. Even though you've beaten both Mendez and Swanson, it feels like a, either one it's a, would be a fresh fight, it seems like, and, and uh, one that you could get people excited about again. Uh, and if you win, then you stay up there and, uh, you know, you're right there in, in the middle of the UFC's historically most talent-rich division where there's a lot of guys out there who you might not be able to coast so easily against that might bring out the best in Jose Aldo again all over. I think it works for everybody. The yeah. only the only people who have a right to get pissed off are the dudes who have been like lightweights for a while now trying to make their cases contenders right. and pretty Tony hasn't even defended the belt once against a, a fellow lightweight and now he's going to welcome the, the featherweight champ up for a huge money super fight and everybody's like oh doing the Johnny Hendricks thing going oh man yeah well TJ Grant's probably been mad for a while but uh uh you know I think it's a slightly bigger deal than so what if Anthony Pettis loses to to uh or if uh, Jose Aldo loses to Anthony Pettis, I think it would be, you know, he would have some work to do then to repair the sort of aura of invincibility that he's had built up around him throughout his entire career in Zufa. Uh, my number one caveat, though, and I wrote about this today on Bleacher Report, is that if I'm Jose Aldo, man, I would make 100% sure that Anthony Pettis is going to be able to make our date on July 4th before I uh, go through the formal process of, of giving up my title and moving up to 155 pounds because, you know, you know, Anthony Pettis says he's going to be ready by early July, but the UFC's own doctor on uh, UFC Tonight a couple weeks ago said, and I quote, I would pray for him, which is some <laughs> scary shit when you hear a doctor say it. I love how you keep bringing that up. Uh, so if I'm if I'm Jose Aldo, it seems like a pretty big risk to me, uh, knowing my own penchant for injury and also Anthony Pettis's, uh, uh, you know, habit for having to pull out of fights with injuries. Uh, I would wait until I was 100% sure that he was going to be able to at least get started in his training camp before I went ahead and moved up because it would be a pretty big shame for the most dominant and only featherweight champion in the UFC's history to give up his title, move up, and then find out, oh, wait, Anthony Pettis isn't going to make it. Uh, you can either wait for him or you can fight somebody else. That would be a pretty big bummer if you're Jose Aldo. That would be. But, I mean, I don't know. If you had to wait an extra two or three months, that's not the end of the world. Uh, as long as, you know, you don't go getting in a motorcycle accident yourself and getting yourself on, yeah, on the Yeah, there's a lot of as, as long and butts in this scenario, <laughs> yeah. isn't there? Because anything could happen with either of these two guys. Everybody just stay off they damn motorcycles. Uh, you know, and, hey, Jose, if you need a ride somewhere, call Pretty Tony. He's got a guy for that. 
he's got a guy for that, man. Or call Hannon Burrell, man. They're teammates. They're boys. They probably go. Oh yeah, he'll come pick on you a, up on his motorcycle. Yeah, they could moped come over on, to 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 the beach together. Just two guys on the same moped. One of them doing a sexy dance. <laughs> I see where you're going with this. Oh, uh, uh, anything else you want to talk about in this fight? I thought weird uh, strategy for uh, Ricardo Lamas, who who at the post-fight press conference was pretty much like, I don't know, maybe I should have wrestled with him more. And we were all sitting at home. We all went, yeah, yes, it yes, also you should have. Like he was kind of saying that he basically fucked up, which because I don't even know if you really want to call that a strategy, what he was doing in there. Uh, it seemed like, and again, we see this sometimes with Jose Aldo, where people have it in their heads that like, okay, the scouting report on him is that he basically, as Joe Rogan likes to keep saying, has no known weaknesses, um, but he gets tired, like, or he fades later in fights. But it seems like, and we saw this in the Chan Sung Jung fight, like, people are thinking that that means he's just going to get tired spontaneously. Like, all I have to do is just kind of hang around and let him kick my leg a few times, and then, boom, he'll be exhausted. Like, no, I mean, he, he might get tired if you go in out there and tire him out, but, like, it's not like he's just going to completely gas out just from, from punching you. Like, that's not going to happen. I don't, and even if it does, he's shown that he can kind of weather the storm in a bad fifth round if he has to. And even if you win that round, so what? What does that do for you? Like, it's not going to necessarily help you win the fight. So, I don't know. It, that does seem like a combination of guys going in there against Aldo with some bad game plans, but then, I don't know if I could necessarily come up with a really good game plan for Jose Aldo. Yeah, and uh, I think it'll, it'll, one of the the most interesting interesting things he could do right now is go up to 155 pounds, and so that that seems like the the right move for him, I guess. Let's Ben, let's do. Uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we will get out of here into round number two for this week. What's your Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, my Are you fucking kidding me? You know. I don't. I don't normally like to do this. I don't like to. to Whoa! You're doing the R. Kelly intro for this. <laughs> Usually, I normally don't, I don't do this. I don't do this. But I gotta give. And are you fucking kidding me? To uh, uh, another MMA website out there, MMAmania.com, who on uh, Sunday, the day of the Super Bowl, ran a quote-unquote story. The headline of which is. Broncos versus Seahawks. What time does Super Bowl start? When is kickoff? Halftime show? 2014 performance and more. That's the fucking headline, Chad. That's the headline of a story on an MMA website. That seems like some search engine optimization to me. Yeah, that is some SEO trolling bullshit right there. And from an MMA website. Now, I can understand it when some of the MMA websites out there are like, oh, we want to do some boxing stuff or some kickboxing stuff. You know, when there's a big enough bout and they think they can get some clicks off of that. Okay, fine. Those are combat sports. Even some of them who want to do like pro wrestling stuff. Okay, not even technically a sport, but all right. I guess there's enough crossover appeal. But man, when you just start like, what time does Super Bowl start? 2014 performance halftime show, you know, like SEO stuff in your headlines for a completely different sport on your MMA website. Are you fucking kidding me? Have you no shame, MMA mania? Have you no shame? Wow, that's a harsh indictment, man. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? It's not the way I thought you were going to go today with your are you fucking kidding me? No, I just look forward to when uh, I log on to MMA mania one day and see Kim Kardashian sex tape, boobs, Kardashian sex, Kardashian sex muff, fucking. Well, you have a Google alert for that, so you'll... (laughs) 
He'll get on there right away. Yeah. Uh, ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Alistair Overeem. We have known for a long time that this guy marches to the beat of his own drummer, mm-hmm. uh, that he kind of, at times in the past in his career, seems like he could either take or leave MMA competition. Uh, the kind of guy that always would sort of go where the, where the money was and the biggest payday. Uh, and at the same time, uh, seems like a guy that the UFC would love to be a big time star in their heavyweight division. Now, I'm not sure anybody expected him to beat down Frank Mir at UFC 169 and then jump on the mic and call out Bork Laser. The old, our old friend Brock, Brock Lesnar, a guy that Alistair Overeem already beat the shit out of. Beat easily. That's like if you beat up a kid and took his lunch money and then, then you know, got on the PA at school and was like, little Jimmy, it's me. I'll, I'll be here tomorrow if you want to come looking for me. He's not going to come looking for you. You already beat him up once. It's up to him to call you out. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, Frank Mir wasn't just bad on Saturday night at UFC 169 against Alistair Overeem. He was, in fact, historically bad as the official statisticians of the UFC fight metric noted when it was all over. Uh, Frank Mears, I believe it was five total strikes landed, tied him for uh, third place all time for the lowest number of strikes landed in a 15-minute fight. Five? Yeah, that's what they said. I think I, would, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, yeah, no. Why would you want to cue up the stat that you're actually going to that I was going to use to to introduce the the segment? Um, we all, uh, as we were sitting there watching it, I remarked to you uh, that it was just kind of sad to watch it go down this way because uh, you and I have been around the sport long enough to remember when uh, Frank Mir was regarded as a super awesome heavyweight, and not not just that, but like a really awesome ground guy. So especially during the portions of this fight where it appeared that Frank Mir was just kind of laying on his back while Alistair Overeem elbowed him in the face, uh, this was a tough one to swallow, at least for me. Yeah, it, and it seems like tougher than it would have been if he had just gone out there and gotten knocked out by Overeem in the first round, which I think, I mean, I was kind of expecting that. Uh, to see him just kind of get thoroughly beaten up by a dude who really just wants to make sure he doesn't screw up somehow uh, and, you know, he's just kind of running out the clock there toward the end and just seemed kind of helpless throughout the entire thing. Like even like maybe even he believed, like, remember those times when it seemed like things were going bad for me and I submitted somebody off of my back? Basically, all I need to do is start getting my ass kicked again and I'll figure it out. Like he never quite making the transition to then like actually setting something up and, and going for something. Just almost zero offense attempted from Frank Mir. Uh, that one was kind of hard to watch, especially as you say. I do remember that time when it was like Frank Mir is the new breed of heavyweights. Remember he's on the cover of Muscle and Fitness in like 2003 looking just like a like a really fit but normal dude. Remember that? You, well, I don't. I didn't have a subscription to Muscle and Fitness. Back you went in to a goddamn grocery store at some point in 2003. You know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, I suppose I do. And 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 uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's one of those situations where 
Clearly, Frank Mir has been around forever. He's kind of, you know, getting up there in years, at least for a professional fighter uh, and a guy who has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of wear on the tires uh, since he's been in the UFC for so long. And, and maybe also a, a, a point where the, the rest of the fighters in the heavyweight division uh, have have kind of passed him by. Yet at the same time, uh, maybe a, a situation where you kind of got to wonder uh, what might have been had he not gotten run over by that SUV during his first uh Heavyweight title reign, uh, I guess only heavyweight title reign, right? Or well, he had the interim. He, he came back for, for the minutes. interim belt yeah. after that, but but, uh, but you, know, you know what though? You were just talking about like referencing his age and how many years he's got on the tires. Does it freak you out to know that he and Uriah Faber are basically the same age? Look at those two guys. Yeah, look at how their careers have 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 panned out. It seems like he just kind of dropped off a cliff here. Uh, you know, production wise, and even when you, you know now he's got four losses in a row, but you go back. Uh, the, the last win he had was that, that win over Big Nog where he was getting beat up and then grabbed the submission. Uh, then, you know, before that, that kind of terrible decision win over Roy Nelson. And before that, that terrible fight where, with Crow Cop where he actually knocked him out at the end and it was the only knockout on the card and the UFC still declined to give a knockout bonus. Just a huge F you right in Frank Mir's face in that one. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad when you put it all out there. Like that, right in a right in a row. Uh, so what's he do now? What do you do? Well, I mean, Frank you got to be done if you're Frank Mir, don't you? Like nobody wants to see Frank Mir become the Bellator heavyweight champion or go compete in the in the Bellator heavyweight tournament or whatever they would have him. I do. think the UFC would love it if that. Well, happens. yeah, they would. I guess <laughs> you when said I say nobody. I guess when I say nobody, I I wasn't including UFC uh, executives uh, in that. But yeah, I mean, and if you're Frank Mir. Uh, he certainly left the door open for that prior to this fight, saying he wouldn't right. have a problem going to another organization and that he would go where the money was and maybe he could get a slice of the five billion in cash. Uh, who knows? Uh, but I think those of us who have who have watched his career uh, and maybe even counted ourselves among as Frank Mir fans at one time uh, would think that that was kind of depressing, to be honest with you. I don't know. I mean, how else are you going to set up that West Sims rematch? That was at the fight where Wes Sims stomped on his face, yeah. the first one. And then Wes Sims and his dad came to the after party just incredulous. Like, <laughs> like, just, like it blew their fucking minds that he couldn't stomp on another man's face in this, in this competition. Uh, so yeah, that, that's maybe the first time that I knew that Wes Sims' nickname wasn't the project for no reason. <laughs> it was a work in process. Yeah, that was, see, that was a different era right there. That was the same era, though, when Frank Mir was appearing on Muscle and Fitness uh, looking like a normal human being. I mean, now, I like, I guess it's one of those things where, yeah, the, the sentimentalist in us, those of us who watched him coming up and thought, like, okay, here's the guy who's going to be the blueprint for the next generation of heavyweights, and to some extent, you know, you could argue was, uh, and now that, you know, he's hit a rough skid and we just want him to to quit and go do something else. We don't particularly care what. Whereas meanwhile, he's like, hey, I could still get paid doing this. And that's a lot easier than going and getting a job, you know. And what the hell? He could go in there to Bellator right now and basically run the table, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. But also Frank Mir has been a guy who has has always struck us as if not – uh, you know, a genius, certainly a guy who's pretty articulate and a guy who, uh, 
might have stuff to offer the world aside from getting punched in the face, uh, you know, maybe as a, a jujitsu instructor or, you know, uh, whatever he might want to do. Uh, I'm not sure that I would advocate that he would be a guy that would should stick around and get punched in the face any longer than he has to, especially since it looks so bad when it's happening. He's one of the he's one of the guys in the UFC who's the worst. Like it looks the worst when he gets beat up. Yeah, he doesn't you know, he, hide it well. No, he gets those kind of like drunk stumbling legs like immediately right yeah. away and, and like, his face one half of his face just like a, a, a bowling ball underneath it yeah and he's just got like blood smeared on his face and just looking miserable looking like he just wants to be anywhere else and yeah. also i mean i think like one of the things that like we talked about earlier that was the most disturbing about this fight um was not necessarily that he lost but just like how little he did in the fight like and how little like he even attempted to do and you kind of wonder like man would were you just in there for a paycheck? What, what were you in there to do uh, if, you know, that was the end result? Like, what what would you do if you if you went to Bellator? If, you know, because even if you go to Bellator, Lord knows they don't have the greatest heavyweights. But if you're just there for a paycheck, there are some dudes uh, out there who are hungry and ready to make their name off of beating a dude like Frank Mir. Yeah, you. no one wants to see Frank Mir get beat up by one of those interchangeable Russian guys that they've got over in Bellator. That, nobody wants to see that. Yeah, and then we could get into Except an for Apollo, other Russians, Apollo I guess. Krieg, uh, you know, Elon Drago kind of situation. And All right, well, let's talk. Roy we'll, Nelson have to go avenge him. Let's talk. It'll be a mess, man. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good movie, actually. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Alistair Overeem before we have to wrap this one up. Uh, I said this during my Are You Fucking Kidding Me, but but probably bears uh, repeating here. Alistair Overeem feels like a dude that the UFC just like really wants to be a ferocious uh, uh, figure in the heavyweight division who just strikes fear in the hearts of people. And then they, they could, they could, uh, promote as a, as a, a challenger for Kane Velasquez who, or whoever has the UFC heavyweight championship. Uh, but for like a f- several fights in a row now, and I would include this one among those fights, he hasn't looked like that guy, man. He doesn't, you know, not, not only do, does his body appear different now in the wake of his positive, uh, test for elevated testosterone after the, uh, or leading up to the fight he was supposed to have with Junior Dos Santos. But Wait, like, you, you mean now that he's improving his cardio? Yeah, now that he's dropping dropping weight and improving his cardio. Yeah. Uh, not only does he appear physically different, but like he, it doesn't seem like he has the same killer instinct that he used to used to have. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that's because he's changed up uh, what you might call diet. his training and his diet. But like, there's definitely something different about Overeem now than the dude who was like uh, destroying Brock Lesnar and knocking out Todd Duffy in like eight seconds or whatever. You know, the thing to me that was. Uh the the most distressing because i agree that he doesn't have the same he didn't show the same killer instinct but he did look in like brief flashes you could see like oh there's the scary overeem yeah like, when he need frank mir in the stomach a couple times you definitely you, he got that look on his face like he was it was about to go down and i can understand to some extent him feeling like okay i'm writing you know two losses in a row uh and in fights where i was ahead and then blew it so here's a fight where i'm i'm ahead and at least for just like you know, my psychological well-being, the thing I'm focused on is not blowing it, not making those same mistakes. So, you know, I can kind of forgive him some of that stuff. Uh, to me, though, like, you know, we, we joked about it earlier, but him calling out Brock Lesnar uh, at the end of it, that to me kind of signals like, wait a minute, what are you here for? Right. Uh, He's a guy who's always, you know, gone where the money was right, his whole he, entire career. But he used to do the going where the money was thing, um, but still like with an eye towards some kind of legacy to some kind of accomplishment. I remember when uh, 
I was at that uh, New Year's Eve fight in Tokyo where uh, he kneed Fujita, I think it was, in the head and looked like he damn near killed him. Uh, also the one where I started to, to come around on the idea that maybe this PED stuff is something we need to take seriously and not just a uh, like a hand-wringing moralist conversation because it looked like he could have seriously hurt that dude. Uh, and afterwards he was in the press conference and he just like announced his intentions for what he uh, was going to do you know, the rest of the year. And it was like, oh, I'm going to take three weeks off and then fight this guy and then I'm going to fight Fedor. And it was like, it was a really prescriptive kind of thing. And I remember asking him like, that seems like a, like a plan that really could, has a lot of ways that it could go wrong. Like, how are you actually going to make sure that happens? And then he just repeated the plan. Uh, and you know, he, he well, has, because if you're a six foot four, 285 pound, uh, trained murderer, uh, that's all you have to do. Like you just tell people what your plans are and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. How can, how can I help with your plans? How do I make myself indispensable to you? <laughs> yes. But I mean, he did, he had that before where like, yeah, okay, I'm going to be the K1 champion and this, and like he had these like specific goals that even if they didn't always make sense to us, you could see how they made sense to him. But this one, like where after, you know, you beat Frank Mir and then you're going to call out a dude who's not in the UFC anymore and a dude who you beat easily the first time you fought. Um, why? Because it would be an easy fight again, probably, and you'd make a bunch of money off of it. Uh, and it's like, man, have you just given up on being UFC heavyweight champion? Is that just not really factor into the plans anymore? Because you have the fortune, the good fortune to be in the one of the only UFC divisions where all you need to do at any given time is win one fight and wait. And you could be next in line for a title shot. You know, and especially if you're a guy like Overeem had some hype behind him, you know, you win maybe one more, let people kind of get used to the, the new body type and maybe pass a few more drug tests, let people kind of stop talking about that a little bit. And they could easily uh, put you in a title fight again that people would be excited about. But it seems like he doesn't even care about that. Yeah, well, luckily for everyone, Bork's not coming back, so uh, we're going to have to figure out something else to do with Alistair Overeem. I saw it bandied about on Twitter that they might put him into a fight with uh, Junior Dos Santos, which sounds like fun for everyone as yes, far as I'm concerned. Uh, so let's go ahead and get that done. Um, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, this week, my Just Saying Stuff concerns news reports that I know you saw, and I saw you conversing with a, a Montana MMA fighter and uh, and the guy, one of the guys who cornered Jamie Barner, Varner this past weekend, Tim Welch. Yeah, uh, cheap who, shot Tim Welch. Who was in right. Craig in, Falls' own in uh, uh, New Jersey for this this fight, and he let slip that a couple of people have been stabbed in the crowd during Jamie Viner's Varner's fight. He seems legitimately shaken up. I'm legitimately shaken up about it. That's what I'm just saying. And when I'm sitting at home watching the UFC on TV, and I start to get the the itch where I'm like, you know what? Uh, maybe it would be all right to go back out there and see another UFC live and in person. And then I find out motherfuckers are getting stabbed at the at the events. No, thank you. I'm gonna. I'll, I will stay home and watch that shit on on tell. You know, one of the things that that might get me to sign up for Fight Pass: more stabbings at the live events. <laughs> Just saying. You know what, though? Come on, that's that's we're we're not talking about UFC events there. We're talking about Newark. We're talking about Newark, and yet New they Jersey. keep going back there, though. They go back there all the time. Yeah. Well. Chad, this week, I'm just saying, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, Ali Bagautanov, uh, crushed it. Yeah. Uh, his nickname is Puncher King, which I think is awesome. That is a great nickname. Ali Puncher King Bagautinov. Uh, his Twitter handle is Ali Puncher King, right? He gets out there on his banner. It says Puncher King. Then, what does Bruce Buffer do when he announces the guy's name, both before the fight and when announcing his victory? 
just announces him as Puncher. No King, just Ali, Puncher, Bogotinov. I'm just saying, Bruce Buffer, who are you to take away this man's title? And presumably also his lands. Who are you to strip this man of his royalty? I don't know how he became Puncher King, but I assume uh, it was there was some intense genealogical research to trace his roots back to some kind of 14th century Puncher King. Whatever, man. If a man wants to be called Puncher King, Bruce Buffer, you owe it to him to call him Puncher King. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week, uh, probably to preview the, the double header middleweight action that's going to be going on at Ultimate Fight Night 36 on February 15th. As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. You know, I hear one of the ways that you can prove your uh, lineage and your right to the Puncher King throne is you have an extra molar. Remember, they have 30. Those guys have how many teeth? Because they need to have 36 teeth. Those guys have an extra tooth. Punch it.